You're listening to Plenary Session. On today's episode of Plenary Session, you're in for a bonus episode. On September 21st, 2018, I gave the 22nd Annual Pennington Lecture, which is a lecture directed at the OHSU Family Medicine Department. That lecture was on seven myths of medicine and marketing. We've removed audience comments and a few missteps, but we've provided the bulk of the lecture, and I hope you find it interesting. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your request. Stay tuned to hear the lecture. But before we launch that, I came across an editorial that recently was published in Seminars in Oncology entitled Desperation Oncology. I wanted to read this to you because I felt that it was an extremely poignant and compelling editorial. It's not that long, and I'll read the bulk of it, but perhaps not all of it. Okay, here goes. Desperation Oncology. The April 26, 2018 issue of the New York Times had an article by science editor Gina Collada entitled Desperation Oncology. When patients are dying, some cancer doctors turn to immunotherapy. The article featured as a lead a picture of Dr. Oliver Sator in his office at Tulane Medical Center in New Orleans. The caption continued, He and other cancer experts offer dying patients the chance to try experimental immunotherapy drugs. Read it yourself and decide, but here is my admittedly biased take. The 1,500-word article is, as most of what Ms. Colada contributes, well-written and even nuanced, consisting of the obligatory miracles found in all human interest stories, the article notes that, quote, immunotherapy drugs can have severe side effects that can even lead to death. Once the immune system is activated, it may attack normal tissues as well as tumors. The result can be holes in the intestines, liver failure, nerve damage that can cause paralysis, serious rashes and eye problems, and problems with the pituitary, adrenal, or thyroid glands. Side effects can arise during treatment or after the treatment is finished. But lest you worry, this is quickly followed by the obligatory disclaimer that, for most patients, though, there are no side effects or only minor ones. Thus, you will not be surprised by the next sentence that concludes, that makes giving an immunotherapy drug to a dying patient different from trying a harsh experimental chemotherapy or a treatment like intense radiation. Alas, yes, harsh experimental chemotherapy and intense radiation. It is obvious that no one would choose harsh and intense treatments over no side effects or only minor ones. I wondered, was this a convenient conclusion or did the doctor she interviewed lead her to conclude this? I write this on a day when a patient with renal cell carcinoma I have helped care for over the last seven years struggled into the examining room. The myelitis that began with nivolumab now makes his walking so very difficult. For this unfortunate patient, the choice of immunotherapy was grounded on solid evidence that made it certain he was much more likely to benefit than be harmed. But for the majority of patients we treat in desperation, we lack such evidence. Indeed, with success currently claimed for an immunotherapy that achieves response rates in the low teens, tumors for which we lack evidence of efficacy are close with single digit or even zero activity. Zero or close to zero if we remove the occasional tumor harboring MSI or DDMMR alterations. 
But consider a recent meta-analysis that examined data in 11,000 patients from 115 arms. Not surprisingly, the percent of patients who developed one or more immune-related adverse events of any grade was higher in those treated with an agent targeting CTLA-4, 54%, compared to the rates among patients treated with anti-PD-1 or pdl one directed therapies. 26% and 17%. Among these were patients with one or more grade 3, 4, 5 immune-related adverse events, significantly higher with anti-CTLA-4, 21%, versus PD-1, 7%, or PD-L1, 6.3%. This is important because it means that in the overwhelming majority of patients we treat in desperation, the likelihood of harm, even important harm, is greater and often much greater than the likelihood of benefit. Do we discuss this with our patients? Do we tell them we are more likely to make the remainder of their short lives worse than of bringing them benefit? I learned as an intern that no one dies in the ICU without steroids. Having never seen other than a rare, truly minor toxicity from this strategy, this seemed reasonable. But we now have come to a place in oncology where no one should die without receiving immunotherapy. In making those decisions, usually as a shared process with a patient and their family, I would argue that unlike those steroids with truly no side effects or only minor ones, the immunotherapy balance sheet must also be discussed. In such discussions, one will often find that the potential of any benefit almost never outweighs the reality of harm, and the latter always exceeds the likelihood of meaningful benefit. And when a patient's remaining life is often measured in weeks, we must always remember what we pledged to do no harm. Tito Fojo, Columbia University. And now, the Pennington Lecture. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to talk to you today about myths of medicine and marketing. First, uh, my disclosure slide. Uh, I wrote this book that's published by Johns Hopkins University Press. and. That's why I'm fabulously wealthy, as many of you know. Uh, my work is funded by this nonprofit foundation, and we're doing a big project on one of the things I'll talk about today. And I'm on Twitter at that handle, which is forced advertisement for plenary session. Um, I'm going to take you through seven myths of medicine and marketing in this lecture. And here's what we'll talk about. Sham control trials, drug company ads, hype, medical evidence, the industry sponsorship of studies, missing a diagnosis, and then some tips about nutritional epidemiology. And there's a bonus number eight if we get through these seven. Okay, myth number one, the sham controlled trials. Uh, I think one of the myths that we face in medicine is that we do not need sham controlled trials. We can just test medical procedures or devices against the best medical management, and if they do better, then we know they work, and if they don't do better, we know they don't work. But likely we need to study where you randomize patients to that invasive procedure or test or device, or you make them believe you did it, but you didn't actually do the, the key step. And here's some examples of that. One, the Orbita study. So I think those of us who have followed the field of stenting, and everyone in this room has had patients who have coronary stents. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, we know that stenting is incredibly life-saving for patients with ST elevation MI. We also know that many, many stents are not put in for that purpose. They're put in for chronic stable angina. And if you put in a stent for chronic stable angina, survey after survey shows that patients believe it will lower the rate of subsequent MI and will increase their longevity, although we know from the COURAGE study that it does neither of those two things. And this is just a discrepancy between what patients believe it does and what we know it to do. But one of the things we thought it did 
was it would improve the symptoms of angina. And this was a widely held belief, um, but it was a belief that um, we actually doubted a few years ago. And in our book, we actually speculated that if stenting were ever tested against a sham intervention, it may not look so good. It looks good when you test it against medical management, but you cannot separate the placebo effect of the procedure from the value of the procedure. So enter Rasha Alami and Daryl Francis from Imperial College London, the investigators of Orbita. Uh, they did a randomized controlled trial of 200 patients, randomizing them to stenting, or the patient thought they got stented. They wore headphones and they simulated the procedure, but they didn't put the stent in. They picked critical single vessel disease, as you can see in these pictures. They, show, they publish all the pictures to show you that they, this is tight disease. These people really do have single vessel disease. I've heard people criticize this trial for using single vessel disease, but actually it's a virtue of the trial. Because imagine if they had two or three vessel disease and they got a stent and they didn't improve, then people will say you didn't stent the right spot. So here you can't say that. They, this is the only spot to stent. This is the critical single vessel disease. So it's actually a more scientifically elegant study. And the other thing you should know is the study in the early 1990s in New England Journal called ACME, randomized patients to medical management or medical management plus stents for angina. And it improved exercise time on a treadmill by 90 seconds. So that was what we knew. We know that single antianginal agents, like maybe renolazine or cranking up a beta blocker, can improve time by 40 to 50 seconds. And if you survey car cardiologists, they'll say about 40 seconds is the clinically meaningful improvement in exercise time for a new drug to come to the market. This, this trial was powered for a 30-second improvement in outcome, and it failed to show that. There is a 16-second difference between stenting and placebo stenting, and it's not statistically significant. So people have faulted this trial for being underpowered. Like this, maybe there's a little difference here, you couldn't detect that difference, but the difference is less than what we think is clinically meaningful. So Daryl Francis said on Twitter that anyone who thinks this trial is underpowered uh, and they cannot tell me what they want to power it for, I'll have to tell them the only thing underpowered is their brain. And, um, and then he, he's, no long, he's, he's no longer that active on Twitter. He's really, he's been off for the last month or so. I don't know what happened. You can only speculate. But it was an accurate statement. I, I quite liked it. So I think when it comes to stenting chronic stable angina, had it not been for this study, which actually was, pub which was conducted against all odds, we would still not really know whether or not stenting improves the symptoms of angina. We'd still believe it does. And now I think maybe it does, but very, very marginally, if it does at all. And we're working on something where we speculate there might be a reason there's 16 second difference here that's not actually due to the procedure, due to an artifact of the study. Let me give you another example. Um, a few years ago, there was an outbreak of fungal meningitis from compounding pharmacies in the Northeast. Last summer, the CEO of that compounding pharmacy went to federal prison for a pattern of abuses. Uh, and I think we talked so much about why did methylprednisolone get contaminated with aspergillus at these compounding pharmacies. We didn't talk that much about why we're injecting so many people in the back for spinal stenosis. And the answer is because we think methylprednisolone improves the symptoms of the condition. And this was an elegant sham controlled study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Patients with pain and spinal stenosis were randomized to lidocaine and placebo or lidocaine and methylprednisolone. And we all know that lidocaine has a short half-life. It'll wear off by a day at most, you know, just like, just like Novocaine, Benzocaine. It'll wear off quickly. But steroids should have a long, potent anti-inflammatory effect. And so this trial measured endpoints at three weeks and six weeks. And these are seven different measures of pain and physical functioning. And the takeaway lesson here is if the methylprednisolone is having a benefit, these curves will be separated at three weeks and six weeks. And they are not. And they all improve. 
suggesting there is a benefit to this procedure. Either it's the lidocaine alone or the belief you had it done, but over time there is no benefit from adding in the corticosteroid. And the conclusion of this paper is that the steroid, although invasive and expensive, is likely a placebo. And so I think the under-discussed lesson of the fungal meningitis outbreak is a lesson about medical evidence, which is that there will always be harms when we intervene. The question is, do the benefits outweigh the harms? And the answer to know that, you need reliable evidence. We've seen sham controls um, really, I don't want to say debunk, but I want to say um, strongly uh, provide a cautionary note on many, many topics. Meniscectomy for knee osteoarthritis, debridement for osteoarthritis, um, vertebroplasty, which we've seen contradicted by a couple randomized control trials, spinal uh, steroid injections in other spots. Um, and PCI for stable angina, we should have had a suggestion that that is susceptible to a sham effect because of a 1953 study by Cobb in the New England Journal where they used to ligate the internal mammary artery and patients who had angina would have symptomatic improvement. Cobb did a sham controlled study of that and he found that both groups had improvement. So since the 50s we've known that angina is susceptible to a placebo response. And Rita Redberg, who's the editor of JAM Internal Medicine, which is I think one of the best journals out there, uh, wrote this provocative article calling for the routine use of sham controls in medical device trials. So what do I think the lesson here is? I think if you have a mechanical or surgical or procedural intervention that improves a subjective endpoint like dyspnea, angina, or pain, and does not improve mortality, which we don't think there's a placebo effect there, but if it only improves a subjective endpoint and it's, in, and it's mechanical intervention, I think we need routine sham controlled studies before they're adopted. Uh, and we can talk more about that. But I think that's, the t that's one of the myths is that one of the myths is we cannot perform these studies or they're unethical to perform these studies. I think the reality is it's far more unethical to conduct a practice for 20 years making maybe $40 billion and doing this in millions of people without fundamentally proving if the intervention works. Uh, drug company advertisements or interaction contain information of value. I don't think they contain any information of value. And I don't think the interactions at the average practitioner level have any value. Uh, I just want to show one example that I thought was one of the most daring things I've seen in a while. The final overall survival results from Radiant 3. So you should know this is one of those new miracle cancer drugs you read about in the news. So they, they can often call them a miracle, but this is the actual results. In the Kaplan-Meier curve, there's a 6.3 month difference in median overall survival, but you can see those curves are pretty close together. And there's an old saying in oncology, which is if you can fit the laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary session at the national meeting. And I, I have difficulty doing it because I have a shaky hand. But the company has nicely colored in that difference. Look at it, make it look good. And here's what it says. It says, this is a meaningful difference for patients, a meaningful six-month survival benefit. And in the fine print, it says, not statistically significant, but clinically meaningful. Which I think was really daring. Not statistically significant, but clinically meaningful. Um, you know, I think in this business we've agreed that before we can talk about how meaningful a result is, it has to meet the threshold of significance and not be perhaps attributed to chance alone. So I think this is the most daring, daring ad I've seen. But I do think, and maybe by the end of this talk I'll persuade you of this, I think we would all be better off if we simply just did not participate in these activities, which would be dinners under the auspices of drug companies. Uh, CME, that's almost exclusively, in my field, almost exclusively funded by the industry, going to the booths, the post-conference sessions, 
I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that these can be enjoyable. You can have a good time. You can have a nice meal. And there's no doubt in my mind that much of what you hear may even be truthful. It won't be inaccurate. Um, it will actually be accurate. But the real question is that even if truthful, these meetings capture your attention. Uh, they focus your attention on products that people want you to think about a lot. And they very tacitly lay the groundwork for these products as often favorable. And they also kind of create a narrative that the older products we use in this space have undesirable side effects, or they're just kind of old and they're not good enough anymore. And they create this kind of narrative that what's newer is better. And I think so even if truthful, I think they capture attention and divert your attention from things that you could be looking at kind of more impartially. Um, so I think we should probably move away from that. And I think recent events in the New York Times suggest that uh, this lesson should be heeded at, at all different levels. Myth number three. We use appropriate language to describe novel therapies. Uh, I fear we don't. I fear we are really over the top when anything new comes out, particularly the disease-specific experts who work in the field. Um, we looked up a few words a few years ago at, in the wake of one of our cancer conferences. We looked up miracle, game changer, cure, revolution, home run, breakthrough, um, and I forget the other ones, but they're all these glowing superlatives. And what we found was we, got, we could very easily get a list of like 100 different drugs, and we looked them all up. We found out 50% of those drugs that were hailed as a superlative were not approved by the US Food and Drug Administration. So it's a miracle but it's not yet approved by the FDA. Or it's a game changer, but it's not approved yet. Maybe they will be, but 50% not approved. But here was the real kicker that really angered me. 14% had never been given to a human being. It's a breakthrough in mice or in cell culture. And to me, this is deeply problematic because we know that a drug that works in a mouse has a very low odds of making it to the clinic someday because many, many drugs have worked in mice. They don't work in people. And I would say, I used to joke that this would be like the news doing a story about a person who bought a lottery ticket. And you ask him, what are you going to spend all your winnings on? And you realize the person just bought a ticket. They're probably not going to win. But then, lo and behold, there was a big lottery. And they literally got someone who bought a ticket, and they did this. So then I realized, OK, well, that's the bar of the news. So um, it really is low. Breakthroughs are around the bend. It really irritates me that I think leading, um, and I think it's almost become synonymous with being a leader, is to make the, I believe, false promise that breakthroughs are just around the bend. Um, this is Scott Gottlieb, the commissioner of the FDA. We have indeed reached an inflection point where the number of discoveries that is being made at such an accelerated pace are saving lives and bringing enormous hope. Oh, I'm sorry, this is Dr. Baselga, who actually was also in the news recently. Uh, this is Dr. Gottlieb. This could be an inflection point in our ability to treat or even cure many diseases. Everything's an inflection point. And in cancer, I had noticed they were using inflection point to describe cancer drugs that target a genomic abnormality in a cancer cell. So by that I mean, you have a patient with cancer, you run a genetic test, you get a result, and you prescribe a drug based on that test. And so they're saying that we're at an inflection point for that. So we went through every single US Food and Drug Administration approval, and we got all the drugs that operate via genetic mechanism, and we plotted what percent of US cancer patients benefit for these drugs year by year, assuming everybody is tested and everyone gets the drug for free, which we actually know is not the case. So actually, the reality is it's more, it's less than this picture, because we have deep inequalities in this society. OK, so this is the best case scenario. We're giving these drugs away for free. Everyone's getting tested. Nobody is going on hospice in the, before they can even get these drugs. And this is it over time. And I ask you, where is that inflection point? Um, there's, no ex it's, there's no exponential growth. There's no inflection point. It's a half a percent per year. Um, 
I also want to point out that, um, you know, a half a percent per year is not nothing. I mean, something. We're, we are making progress, and I think we should, we should feel good about that, that we are advancing this field. But I think we have to be real about it that this is a half a percent a year. And I think if I ask you what you feel the rhetoric around cancer drugs is, especially genomic cancer drugs, and you read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and USA Today, um, you would not think that this is the reality. And uh, I get so much heat and criticism for having published this, and, I, and people say, you're a pessimist. This is not pessimism or optimism. This is simply plotting out something that you all should have done before you used inappropriate rhetoric, in my opinion. Uh, James Watson famously said in 1998, Judah Folkman is going to cure cancer in two years. And Andy von Eschenbach said, we're going to eliminate suffering and death due to cancer by 2015. I think we have a history of people in prominent positions making grandiose claims that they just simply did not deliver on. And I think the public, uh, it really deeply undermines trust in scientists. And if you want to wonder, I mean, I think we have to ask ourselves how much damage we do to science through a history of overpromising and 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 failing to deliver and not being honest which is that science is the best way forward it's a half a percent is better than zero but it's not easy it's hard it'll take a lot of years and take a lot of funding um, and i think that's the reality and the last thing i wanted to show you the md anderson puts out this graphic and they say, like, imagine this, you know, the MD Anderson, you come in with cancer, you get molecularly profiled, this person, this person, this person, they take this pill, look how good that looks, right? It's the future. The same year they published this, they published their own results from doing this in patients, and I have photoshopped the figure to reflect the actual numbers, right? So this is what they put out, and these are the actual numbers. Of all these people, six of them would have a drug, right? So they, so I think their graphic is disingenuous to their own data at the time. Okay, myth number four. Most of what we do is based on good evidence. I think um, as providers, we so easily focus on the decisions that we make um, for which there is good evidence. And there's so many decisions we make in the course of a day that just fall into the backdrop of the day. You go on service, you open the chart, K is low, you're repleting, and you start to ask yourself, does this person without structural heart disease at this level of potassium really need it repleted? But you know, you do it because that was how my resident, who I admired a great deal, taught me how to do it. That was how my attending taught me how to do it, how she taught me how to do it. So we do it because these things have just been passed along. And we never, and, and to be honest, it would be paralyzing to ask yourself about every little thing you do because we make so many decisions in the course of a day. But what if you did? So this is Fee Godley, Fiona Godley, who's the editor of the British Medical Journal, about a decade ago, she was in charge of a project called Clinical Evidence, which was run by the BMJ. And they selected 3,000 medical practices at random from all of the things the NHS was, do, were, was doing at the time. And they looked to see what is the evidence for these 3,000 randomly selected practices. They indeed found a fraction, 11%, was beneficial. Another chunk, and by beneficial I mean multiple randomized trials show that works. Another chunk was likely to be beneficial. There was one good study, or there was really good before and after study. There was a, just a good suggestion that that was probably going to work. They found that some things we were doing were likely to be ineffective or harmful. They simply did not work, but there was something about providers, they would not let it go. And I believe I know what that is, which is that um, if you take a doctor, and I believe that even though there are all these financial biases out there, the average doctor really does in their heart want to do good. You take a person who really wants to do good, and they do something for years, even decades, 
and they, they want to do good, and they have patients come to them and thank them and say, you know, I do feel better, um, because we know that you know, 80% of conditions get better over time, even if you do nothing, right? So but they thank them, and they say, you know, they want to do good, they did something, they got that reward from the patient, and then you get a little financial reward for doing that. And I think that combination is like the methamphetamine of being a physician. It's a highly addictive substance, and once you get hooked on it, you cannot break that addiction. And somebody will come to you and show you the best data in the world, that this is totally bankrupt, intellectually bankrupt, and they will find they're smart people, very clever and elaborate reasons why all the negative evidence does not apply, and even though there's not a single shred of robust positive evidence, they should still do it. Um, and then they'll talk about the art of medicine and how evidence-based medicine has gone awry. Uh, you know, they have lots of things they can say, uh, but they simply cannot deal with the reality that, you know what, you did something, you really tried to do your best, but you were wrong. It's very hard for us to accept. But what I wanted to show you here, the real takeaway, is that 50% of what was in that random selection, there is no data either way at all. Never been studied. So the provocative conclusion of Fee Godley's paper um, is that much of what we're doing, we just don't know. So over the years, we've tried to estimate what would happen if you took this 50% and subjected it to very rigorous appraisal. So we put out this analysis in 2013, and here's what we did. We tried to estimate how often accepted standard of care would be contradicted if you put it to rigorous testing. We took every original article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in a decade, it was 2,000 articles, and these were all read in duplicate. And that is why God invented medical students, to do <laughs> this kind of hard-hitting work. And they were paid nothing, because that's, that's what we had. We had nothing, so we were paid nothing. Um, but actually, if you think you're a student and you're doing a project, I would say this is the absolute best project for you to do. Because even if we never published anything, you have just read um, probably like a career worth of education. You know, you've really gotten a good education by reading these articles and trying to code them. So, of all these articles, 66% concerned a medical practice. So what do I mean by that? A third of the articles were about something biological. There's some new mutation that causes some disease that's unpronounceable. Okay, that paper could appear in the New England Journal, but also in Nature or Cell or Science. But two thirds were something we were doing. We were wearing contact precautions in the wards. We were doing tight glycemic control in the ICU. We were um, putting impermeable bed covers for patients with allergic rhinitis who had allergens to um, the common dust mite. We were prescribing uh, uh, PPIs for people with asthma and cough, or you know, et cetera, et cetera. These were things we were doing. Okay, first thing. 1,073% tested something novel. So about three quarters of these is, is rivaroxaban better than Coumadin? Is new cancer drug better than old? Is new SSRI better than old SSRI? Um, if you test something novel, and if you were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, what do you think the result was? Positive, 77% find the novel practices beneficial. That is simply too good to be true. It's not reflective of all phase three trials that are run. And this is what people mean by publication or selective reporting bias. The New England Journal of Medicine cares about their impact factor. For their impact factor to go up, their article needs to be cited. No one is gonna cite the anticoagulant or antiplatelet or the antilipid drug that goes nowhere. But they wanna cite rivaroxaban for as long as we use rivaroxaban. But we also found a quarter tested something we were already doing. These were the things that there often was no clear evidence base, um, and, but we had already implemented it. And if you test something we're already doing, 40% validated that practice. Yes, you should have gotten that annual flu shot, but 40% contradicted it. No, 
you shouldn't have had that swan dance placed routinely uh, for shock in the ICU. So it was a split. And here I wish to suggest there was actually less of a publication bias at play because the mere testing of something people, is, people are doing is provocative, it's standard of care, it's what we do, it will be cited a long time, irrespective of whether or not you validate or refute it. So I think that this may be some clue as to what would happen if you took that 50% and subjected it to rigorous appraisal. Do not be surprised if a fair chunk of it um, falls by the wayside. In the supplement of this paper and in our book, <coughs> we actually put every reversal we found and we explain in a little paragraph, why did this come into prominence? What was the data behind it? Why were people doing it? Why was this single study so good it contradicts the totality of the data? Um, it's, it's not because there's like many, many randomized trials and the point estimate shifts on a forest plot. This is because there's anecdote, case-based, uncontrolled studies, and finally you have one study that uses some appropriate, um, appropriate design. It's like the only light in a sea of darkness. Those would tend to be the narrative we see here. And I would say, if you are interested in the history of medicine, you should read through the supplement. It's only like 10 pages, um, but here's why. When you read everything in medicine, uh, history is written by the victors, and Harrison's makes it seem as if the medicine we practice today was inexorable. It was always going to be this way. It was nothing but linear progress. It was like, you know, like your television or your cell phone. It's just getting better over time. They've omitted so many false steps and, and false leads. Those get written out of the books. Here you'll see they're not written out. We've kind of captured them, at least one time point. And you will see the best people at the best centers with the best preclinical data and the best of intentions were misled. And you start to apply that to what we do today that we believe is equally bioplausible, that has really good anecdotal or circumstantial data. Um, and you'll start to see that there's a lot of things we feel very confident about that we probably shouldn't. I just want to point out that there was really no category of medical practice that was sacrosanct. Medications, procedures, devices, surgery, screening tests, over-the-counter pills, vitamins, supplements, treatment algorithms. What do I mean? After people got stents, we used to test everyone who was put on Plavix for platelet reactivity. And if their platelets were still reactive while on Clopidogrel, we would pump, bump them up to Prasagrel. And somebody did a randomized trial called Arctic of testing everyone after a stent was placed to getting the platelet tested or not, 4,000 person randomized trial, and they showed by testing people and changing the medicines, you do not improve any clinical outcomes. And actually in the Lancet this last month, we saw high sensitivity, high sensitivity troponin assay testing, which is a step wedge cluster randomized trial in Scotland that shows you can implement high sensitivity troponin. You will find 17% heart attacks you did not otherwise find, and in one year you will have improved neither MI nor mortality. I, okay, but I, oh, I'm spoiling my future slide. Oh. Uh, the last thing I want to say is systems interventions, quality and performance metrics, every corner of healthcare. Um, especially in the quality and performance metrics because you know I think we have this strong urge to do something about some of these quality and performance benchmarks, but we simply don't want to generate the credible data and we do have many missteps there. Okay, myth number five, industry-sponsored trials are helpful. I often feel like um, people, people say that, you know, I point to a lot of shortcomings in industry-sponsored trials and they say, well, that trial's better than nothing. And I want to say that for many fields and situations, absolutely that is the case. I think the trial is better than nothing. 
For some fields and situations, I think nothing is better than the trial. That's how bad the trials are getting. I'll give you one example, which is LCZ696 or Entresto, which is under a heavy marketing barrage right now, and cardiologists are probably switching some of your patients left, right, and center. This is based on one randomized controlled trial, which is randomizing patients to enalapril or LCZ696, which is a combination of Valsartan and Secbutril, which is a neprilysin inhibitor, which is a novel drug. We have no other drug of that class that's approved. We have many ARBs and we have many ACEs. This is the result. And when I got into debate with Milt Packer, who's the PI of this trial, he pointed out that that p-value, it has a lot of zeros in it. That means it's a good trial. And I told him, that that does not mean it is a good trial. That means it's a difference, but let me show you why it's not a good trial. So you should know, a few years ago, you may ask the question, why are we combining a neprilysin inhibitor with an ARB? And the answer is, a few years ago, we had a single drug, this drug, which is a neprilysin inhibitor slash ACE inhibitor. And it actually, in a non-inferiority study, was non-inferior to an allopril uh, 10-BID. Um, but it did not get FDA approval because it had high rates of angioedema. And so people think that when you inhibit neprilysin, you should not also inhibit ACE. You have a lot of angioedema with that combination. So drug development shifted towards pure neprilysin inhibitors and pairing them with ARBs. So that's a little bit of the historical background. We published this um, this week called, Do the Limitations in the Design of the Study Justify the Slow Real-World Uptake? Um, which was like the hardest article I've ever tried to publish because I think uh, it, we had staggering resistance from reviewers at many, many journals. It took a long time. But I never give up. I just ask someone to submit on my behalf. And just, <laughs> that's how I've solved that problem. So th thank you, Kiana and Diaz. So what, what, the first thing I have a problem with this trial is the dose. Valsartan 160 milligrams BID plus the novel drug was tested against enalapril 10 milligrams BID. How many of you have a patient in your practice on Valsartan 160 BID? Does anyone have ever, I've, I, was, I ran an medicine clinic for three years, a lot of people, veterans, a lot of antihypertensives, I'd never gotten a single patient that high. Has anyone got a patient that high? No, it's very difficult. They pass out in your office, right? <laughs> they pass out when you hand them the script and they look at that number. Um, the other thing is this is the maximum FDA approved dose of the ARB. This is the half maximal FDA approved dose of the ACE. So it's already an imbalance. This is, it should be 20 milligrams BID, max dose. The blood pressure is lower among the group that got the combination. Uh, so there's actually, and in the supplement, it will say that of all the people who entered this trial, some fraction were on enalapril. It was very low, because who wants a BID ACE? Um, uh, and of that fraction, they give you the mean and the standard deviation. And we've calculated, assuming normal distribution, there's about like 30% of the people on enalapril were on a higher dose than the maximum dose permitted in the trial. So you're taking people who really can take a lot of, of RAS inhibition, and you're just dose reducing them in the control arm. That's that is what I think is going on. And here's what else they do. They do a double drug run-in period. And uh, I'll show you some data for this. They took 10,000 people, and they're on ACEs and ARBs as you were manage, uh, managing, and I didn't say, this is heart failure, New York Heart 2 predominantly, but I think you all know that. Um, 10,000 people who are on ACEs and ARBs, we stop their ACE and ARB, we put them on enalapril 10 BID for 14 days, two weeks of that. And that two weeks, 1,000 people fall off the study, 10% attrition. Then we put everybody on LCZ 696 at half of that dose, at 80 milligrams BID dosing of Valsartan, we'll crank them up in the next step. 14 days at half dose, and then another 14 days where we ramp them up to the full dose. So we do a dose escalation. So you're on this drug for 28 days. You're on an for 14. 
and another thousand people fall off the study. So we have 20% attrition before we get to randomization. And when you're randomized, the 80% of people who survive this, I don't know, maybe it should be a show on NBC or something, you know, this kind of, this kind of reality TV show of double drug running, you have 80% of people left. What is the randomization? You're randomized to stay on the medicine you were just on for the last month and tolerating well, or to switch back to an Allopril 10-BID. So any penalty there is for switching back and forth will be bore only by the control arm. So that's the design. Double drug run-in, and I say that this tests a different question. It doesn't test whether this drug is better than an Allopril. It tests whether it is better to stay on Entresto or switch to an Allopril after exposure to both drugs for unequal periods of time. <laughs> that's literally what it tests, which is a question that no one's facing in their practice. I think they shouldn't have approved the drug based on one trial. They have a rule in cardiovascular drug division, you need two trials, um, and that's not because, and then Milt says that, well, the p-value is so significant, you only need one trial. I said, that's not the issue. The issue is your design is so convoluted. Um, I want to know if this drug improves outcomes. Well, we, will, we may know something because they're doing a huff-puff study, so we may get that second trial someday, but it'll be after they've drummed up market share. Um, of course, it's much more costly than the standard of care. Uh, it has a lot of other drawbacks. The actually FDA-approved dose is lower than the dose they achieved in the trial, by the way. Um, so anyway, I put Rosa on, who's a medical student here. I had her review the last 16 years of cardiovascular drug approvals. There are 46 drugs that were approved based on 141 studies. I said, how many studies compare A plus B versus C? Okay, that's their design. Novel drug plus Valsartan versus di different drug. The answer was just only one other study, and that was isosorbide hydralazine versus enalapril, but they required a confirmatory study, so they made them do another study. That was for heart failure in African-American population. And then the next question I asked was, how many use a double drug run-in period of different periods of time? And the answer was zero. So this is an un it is an unprecedented study, not because of the outcome, but because of the design. And I think, you know, if, you work for, if I worked for the company and the company said, how can I take a drug that may or may not work, but have the absolute most favorable trial design? That's kind of what I would think of. Um, you know, this is, it's, it's simply a rigged trial design. And I don't think you can blame the companies, because what you're saying is, if you win in one study, we will give you $10 billion. And if you lose, we will give you nothing. And you design and conduct the study as you see fit. The temptation to cheat is irresistible. If I ran a painting contest and I was the judge and I submitted a painting, I will win the painting contest. Uh, especially, and I'm a very bad painter. I make George W. Bush look like a good painter. So, a very bad painter. Myth six, it's always good to make a diagnosis. I think this is one of the greatest um, challenges we face in this field, and I face it too, because I always hear people complain that a doctor didn't make a timely cancer diagnosis. And sometimes I honestly tell somebody that, you know, it's not just sometimes, I, I say like, I think about it a lot. Like for you, in your situation, would, it really, you, would you really have been better off had I made this diagnosis sooner? And I think everyone believes that that's just like innate, intrinsically true, but I think it's almost very rarely true. Um, a lot of times I have people diagnosed with advanced follicular lymphoma. The treatment is observation until they require treatment. So by diagnosing them earlier, you just add lead time and anxiety. I could have waited until they have some symptom, which is when I'm gonna treat them, you know, for instance. But there are a whole bunch of gray zone. The other extreme is you have somebody with a rip-roaring stage four neuroendocrine tumor, and the doctor diagnosed it at point X, and I was like, well, you know, honestly, 
this is a, almost very difficult to treat cancer, even if you diagnosed it a month sooner. And four months ago, I bet it was barely visible. It may be one cell, you know, because it's really just exploding. So I think, you know, it's very difficult to know should you have made a diagnosis earlier. But let me give you some data. Thyroid cancer. This is Korea. In Korea, they started screening for thyroid nodules. Um, this is what you get when you screen for thyroid nodules, an incidence that's just exploding and thyroid cancer mortality that's absolutely unchanged. And we see that in this country. And we see it more and more when CAT scans are done for anyone who has pain from their neck to their pelvis. They're gonna get tropes in a CAT scan if you walk into an ER today. Um, and you're gonna get things like this. Just absolutely no benefit, rampant overdiagnosis. Um, let's talk about high sensitivity troponin. Um, Proponents of this were pointing out that there are people who come in and rule out with chest pain who will die in the next 30 days. And that is, looks bad. But the question is, could you have done something different to identify those people and improve mortality? You should never take it for granted just because you make a diagnosis, you're improving mortality. Those things don't always go hand in hand. And high sensitive troponin is a great example. It's a complicated step wedge cluster trial within, with two periods of time. So the figure is a little hard to interpret, but the takeaway is this. When you don't use this very sensitive way to detect MI, there will be 17% of people who get sent home, you didn't think they had a heart attack, but they probably did have small myocardial necrosis that released enzyme. Um, they will miss some real heart attacks. But if you diagnose those people with heart attacks and you treat them for a year with all the stenting and cranking up their statins and antiplatelets that you wanna do, there's no difference in mortality or MI as this study shows, which I think is very sobering, that even a condition like cardiovascular disease where the drugs are good, I mean, it's not a condition where we have no good drugs, we have very good drugs. Um, the label of MI does not confer added advantage over the label of this is somebody who obviously probably has cardiovascular disease and should get some, some sort of treatment. Um, I think you should take a look at this paper, and actually in the last episode of the podcast we discussed it, we have a paper in the British Medical Journal out now, um, it's called, um, MI, stroke, metastasis, are these still clinical endpoints? And we point out that 10 years ago in some clinical trials, like Prove It Timmy 22, which is a torvastatin trial, or some trials in prostate cancer, you would lower the rate of MI, and you would see a reduction in cardiovascular death and a, and a trend towards overall mortality benefit. Now, with the PCSK9 drugs, we lower MI, but there's no difference in cardiovascular death and no difference in overall mortality. Now, in the old prostate studies, you'd lower metastasis and improve prostate cancer death. Now you lower metastasis and you're not improving prostate cancer death. What's going on? I think you have to keep in mind that what counts as an MI in 1998 and 2018 is very different. A metastasis of prostate cancer in 1998 was a big chunk of prostate cancer somewhere else. Now, I have a patient on bone scan. I find one little thing. I get the wizards from IR to go and biopsy that, and I've proven metastasis but I'm finding a much lower volume disease and I'm, upsta I'm upstaging somebody and I'm coding them as an event, but I would never have found that 20 years ago. And we argue that may explain the fact that we're improving these outcomes, we're not getting commensurate improvements in the outcomes we really care about. My last one. Nutritional epidemiology has any value at all? And I think the answer is no, it has no value. It's a totally debunked field. I see that this guy at Cornell was just forced to resign because he was guilty of p-hacking or whatever else he did. I'm sure his studies were bad. I didn't even want to bother getting into it too much because I think the whole field is bad. It's a broken field. And even the people who do this well and honestly are doing us a great disservice. They're doing it very badly, so here's why. Um, 
people who read the news feel as if this is what the news is doing. And this is what the New York Well column is doing. We spin the wheel this week. Coffee. Make, can cause, spin the wheel. Depression. In, twins. Boom. Let's print it. We got a story. According to a press release today. And it always says, like, researchers at Harvard University. And then, then I ask people I know at Harvard, they're like, I don't even know who this, you know, who is this person? It's like anyone who's like loosely affiliated with the institution. They just say, Harvard University researchers, fine. Coffee can cause glaucoma children, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but it's a bit of a joke, but um, it's not that much of a joke because it's an actual thing I saw. Vitamin E increases all-cause mortality. I went to my cupboard and I threw out every bottle of old vitamin E, but then, I was back at Costco because vitamin E mortality is so challenge. I bought the biggest bottle of vitamin E I've ever seen. <laughs> so there's a paper published two years ago that actually explains like why we get this phenomenon. And I think few people have read it, so I will take you through. Because I think once you understand it, you will see what the issue is here. Um, when we study whether or not nutritional exposures are linked to long-term outcomes, we go to many data sets, but one data set is the NHANES data set. Food frequency questionnaire administered for 20 years, and we know mortality outcomes on the back end. And we perform some type of regression analysis. Um, it can be very complicated or very simple, but they're really something like this. You set up a mathematical equation. You say, I want to predict if someone lives or dies. That's the Y variable. And then let me say, what are the things that might predict if they live or die? Well, the thing I want to study, vitamin E. That's the first thing you put in your model. Does vitamin E, higher and lower, linked to living or dying? But what if it were the case that older people are disproportionately using vitamin E and younger people are not? Then it might look like it's harmful, but the reality is it might be beneficial. You have to adjust for age, obviously. So let's adjust for age. Then let's adjust for sex or less than just for race. So you set up a model, you pick some covariates you adjust for. This is just one classic model. Okay, so I run this model with NHANES, a publicly available data set on Stata, which is pretty cheap these days, uh, at Portland. And my friend in Toronto has the same data set, same question, and she runs it, adding an income as a variable because they care about socioeconomic determinants of health in Canada, and we do not. We don't care about it. We, talk, we, we really don't seem to care about it. So they care about it there, so they add it in. Boom, they just for income. And my friend in North Carolina, they add in smoking, because they see it all the time. I, I don't see that much smoking, uh, but they see quite a bit of it in North Carolina. It's everywhere, so they remember to adjust for smoking. And then the smarty pants at Harvard adds in all this. BMI, hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, alcohol consumption, education, family history of heart disease, because they don't want to get rejected. So they put it all in. <laughs> so I think the point I want to make is that when you look at a data set like this, we can all construct a plausible narrative why these are good things to adjust for, or why these are good things to adjust for, or why some combination of these are good things to adjust for. We can pick and choose our analysis plan. And there, may, there are many, many of us looking at this question. In fact, I'll tell you the questions everyone's looking at right now. Dark chocolate, alcohol, tea, coffee, berries, because berries are super in and pitted fruit is out. No one's studying, you have a peach or a plum, you, go, you put that in a trash can. No one wants to read your peach study. We want to read about an unpronounceable berry that's going to help us. Okay, so those, that's, everyone's looking at the same set of questions. It's like newspaper catnip, and there's many of us studying it. And we all can pick different analysis plans, we all can tell a story. Okay, that's what, so that's what John Ioannidis and Chirag Patel realized. They said, 
Every time you read an article in the news, somebody's adjusting for one set of covariates. What if we adjusted for every possible combination of 13 common covariates? What if we simulated a thousand or million people doing research all at once? We're simulating the ecosystem of research, and that's what they did, and this is what they got. They picked single nutrient and single outcome, vitamin D, mortality, vitamin E, mortality. And every time they pick that, they, they run a million regressions of every possible combination of the commonly adjusted covariates. And every time they get a single result, they shoot that on the scatter plot. And this is a heat map. This hot part is piping hot. There's like thousands of points all on each other. And this cool part is just like one or two things at the extreme. Okay, and on one axis, they're plotting the hazard ratio. On the other axis, they're plotting how significant it is. But actually, they're plotting negative log 10 significance, but it's a technical thing you don't need to concern yourself with. Okay, they're plotting, they're plotting the risk, and they're plotting, like, is it significant? And they're making these huge clouds. And what they're showing you here is that every time the New York Times covers a study, it's one dot on this plot. We have simulated a thousand Harvard researchers working for a thousand years, right? That's, we've simulated the research agenda. And in fact, it's not really a simulation because that's what's really going on. Okay, so where is the heat of the map over what hazard ratio? Remember, one means no association. So what do you think the heat of the map is sitting right on? One. Almost everything we eat or drink, one serving here or there, has no meaningful link to all-cause mortality. That's the bulk of what they find. Um, but you can get points in either extreme directions, and that can even like, go towards significance sometimes in both directions. Um, they call this the Janus phenomenon after like the two-faced Roman god. Uh, but their point here is that when you read the, the published literature, no one's publishing the heat of the map. Because if I run that analysis and I get one, would I even waste my time writing it up? It's like, you know, it's like a couple weeks of our time writing it up. And who's going to publish it? You know, it's not going to help our career. The only people publishing are the people who are getting the results on the extremes. And so what he's arguing is that even if you assume no one is being dishonest, if you take a hot question, many research teams, and much interest in a topic with an analysis plan that's very flexible, you can pretty much get whatever you want. And when it comes to dark chocolate or tea or alcohol, you have that situation. And in fact, we proved in a study a few years ago that the news actually, they bend over backwards to preferentially cover these studies. Observational studies are disproportionately covered in the news. Okay, so then before I end this topic, I just want to add one thought, which is that um, uh, we used to think, people say, like, why are randomized trials better than observational studies? Okay, so the classic textbook answers is it minimizes confounding. You know, you're distributing known and unknown variables. It actually does not eliminate confounding, but it does minimize confounding. That's particularly true when a, if, a, if a practice is affected by um, confounding by indication. In other words, if doctors are disproportionately using practices in people who look, look a little healthier than those who are sick, like cancer doctors, it'll look like our treatments are better, but because we're not giving them to the sickest patients, because we're really worried about those patients. Okay, so you can get that phenomenon. And that is, in fact, one of the things they do. The other thing randomized trials do is it minimizes multiplicity. 10,000 people can't test the same question and only publish the positive results because it's expensive to run the randomized trial. And once they get the result, they'll want to publish it. But we have finally come to a time where we are getting 200 randomized trials with the same drug in every different combination. I'm thinking about Avastin. And we have, we're arguing that like, um, I, I would say there are researchers who argue that now you should no longer look at a single trial for a drug. You should look at the portfolio of all of the trials and ask yourself, how many times has this drug been tested? Because a cancer drug that's sugar water, if you test it 200 times, it's going to work in some fraction of those trials. But it doesn't mean those trials are actually 
valuable. So we've done some work in that space. Okay, do we have time? We have, we go to the 15, okay, the bonus. The bonus myth number eight is surrogates are good. I don't know what to say. I mean, I guess I would say that like a surrogate endpoint, uh, the co-author of my book says, is an endpoint a patient didn't know mattered until a doctor told them that it did. Like your blood sugar, your blood cholesterol, or um, your tumor size on a CAT scan when measured in two dimension, which is really what progression-free survival is. And my field is just mired in this um, devotion to surrogate endpoints. People have forgotten that it's actually not what the patient is feeling. And patients can progress or have response, and that is not, and they may not feel a single thing. Um, I, don't, I guess I, I focused here on oncology, but I, I guess I, the point I want to make is, between 1995 and 2004, if you look at a set of phase three trials in oncology, half of them had survival as the primary endpoint. That's down to a third, and it's been replaced with progression-free survival, time to progression, uh, it's up to 50%. We, have, we are using more surrogates than we've ever used before. And we have studied this, and we have an update of this figure coming out. If you look to see the correlation between the surrogates we use in oncology and survival, we went through every study that's ever studied that correlation in this like umbrella analysis a few years ago in geometrical medicine. Here's low, meaning the surrogate is a very poor predictor of survival. And you can see, the majority of correlations are low, especially in the metastatic setting where we actually use them the most. And very few are high quality, which is what the German ICWIC group wants before they give drug approvals based on the surrogate. So it's actually like not only are we using more surrogates, the surrogates we're using have poor stand-in for survival. And um, I think we see that obviously in diabetes because A1C, although it has some surrogacy for microvascular complications, has very poor surrogacy for cardiovascular mortality. Um, lipid levels have, I think, very modest surrogacy. HDL surrogacy has been dropped, is essentially absent now after another string of HDL boosting failures. LDL surrogacy is also question mark, as we'd seen with phenylfibrate and um, you know, a little bit niacin. Um, so I think you know, we have this problem of using surrogate endpoints, that we like them a lot, we feel as if we should use them, Okay, so I think the gist of this talk is that the myths we face are, I think it makes medicine like a very challenging time right now because we have, um, I think, more cash being pushed into this field by for-profit entities than probably in any other time in history. We have more industry involvement. And the regulatory agencies are largely, I think, doing actions that support the industry. <coughs> Um, particularly in this climate. So I think um, it is like no longer the chance that a doctor can say, hey, this was FDA approved, I should use it. Like that day is gone. Now every one of us has an obligation to look at things ourselves and ask like, does this meet my standards? Um, we have to really become always learners. We have to always be studying things. We can't rely on the experts. Uh, I didn't take you through that, but uh, the conflicts of interest among experts is tremendous, and it's, it's much higher than the average practitioner. Um, and we can't let the experts just shape the narrative. And so I think it makes the job of being a doctor harder than it's ever been. Um, and uh, so I don't have a good answer there. I just think that it takes a lot of work, and this is the new job. Um, so thank you all for having me. I'm happy to take some questions the time we have. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. 
Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.